This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Episode number one, recorded February 28, 2011. I'm Tim Kripe, your host. We are launching this podcast to increase communication and education about research on childhood cancer because we believe that if more people stay up to date with the latest findings, understand the nuances, and think about the issues, we will solve kids' cancer sooner. So I'm here with a number of my co-hosts, all from Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves to you so you can start to hear their voice. So first person on my left is Maureen O'Brien. Maureen. Hi, welcome. I'm the representative for the podcast today to talk about leukemia and lymphoma in children, which is my area of research and clinical interest. Go ahead, Jim. Hi, I'm Jim Geller, uh, and I'm uh, here with an interest in solid tumors and neuro-oncology, as well as new drug development. Lars, you're up. Hi, I'm Lars Wagner, and also have an interest in neuro-oncology and solid tumors. And Raj. Dave's Raj Nagarajan. I'm also in the pediatric oncologist, and I uh, primarily do uh, solid tumors and also do survivorship care. Great. Thank you guys for being here. I know you're all very busy. Uh, two of you are, in fact, on service this week, so that makes it tougher. So we apologize in advance to the listeners if you hear pagers or phones go off. So it, it is an awful thing, but kids do get cancer. And I just want to talk a little bit before we launch into our first uh, research finding to discuss today, uh, a little bit about uh, more about why we're doing this and about the format. So, you know, fortunately only about 1% to 2% of all cancers occur in children, but this figure really underestimates the impact in terms of years of life affected. So not to minimize the importance of studying adult cancers, but really if you think about it, curing a 4-year-old of leukemia might give that patient 70 more years of life, while curing a 70-year-old might uh, only give him or her only four more years. Of course, I might feel a little differently about that in a few more years. But uh, So research on childhood cancer has a long history of being groundbreaking, not only for the cancer types that appear in children, but also uh, the findings have applied to many other cancers that occur in adults. For example, the, the one that comes to my mind the, the quickest is the RB gene that plays a major role in a majority of cancers, but was discovered as named after a childhood disease, retinoblastoma. And in fact, the whole idea of banding together different institutions to form a group of doctors and scientists called a cooperative group, as many of you know, to study cancer really arose out of pediatric oncology and the need to study more patients at once than are typically available at any one hospital. Although there are not enough research dollars devoted to childhood cancer as we think there ought to be, there are still plenty of new advances in the field every day and most people really don't know about them or don't keep up on them. And so uh, we thought that by discussing these findings, we'll be able to help listeners of this podcast as well as ourselves stay informed and be able to put new advances into perspective. So we really are planning on discussing recent reports in the medical literature and possibly interviewing some of the doctors doing the work uh, to get their direct perspectives. Um, and we plan to cover anything from basic science to clinical research to clinical outcomes to health services research if they impact pediatric oncology. So we are open to suggestions from you, our listeners, about topics or papers you'd like to hear us discuss. 
There's that page that I talked about. Uh, or if you'd like to even hear about uh, from certain people that you'd like to have us interviewed on the show, we're happy to entertain comments or questions. And you can email us. Uh, I'll t- tell you our email address at the end of the episode. Uh, and then during future episodes, we'll respond to those emails um, and discuss them. So feel free to write in any any thoughts that you might have. Now, please note that we do not plan on giving any medical advice for individual patients, uh, but we are hoping that this will be interesting and informative for our physician and scientist colleagues, not just uh, those in pediatric oncology, but in adult oncology and possibly even other pediatric specialties or other adult specialties. We also hope this podcast will be useful to students at all levels of training, from high school to college to graduate and medical school to residents and fellows. And we're going to, for the most part, try to use non-technical language, so even savvy parents, patients, and families might also like to listen. So we're going to stick to a relatively informal uh, format and make it conversational as much as possible so it's not like you're listening to a lecture. So last few things, we're thankful to Solving Kids Cancer for sponsoring this podcast, which can be downloaded from their website at www.solvingkidscancer.org, or you can subscribe online at the iTunes store for free. And I also want to thank and acknowledge Vincent Racaniello uh, in New York for, and his team uh, for launching This Week in Virology and This Week in Parasitology, TWIV and TWIP, respectively, which inspired me to create this podcast and after which I modeled its format. And we plan to upload episodes weekly or every other week, and past episodes will be available again from iTunes or Solving Kids Cancer website. So, without further ado, let's get started. The paper that I picked for our first discussion uh, in some ways was a landmark paper in the field just for documenting where we're at. It doesn't actually have any new findings, but I thought to begin our podcast series, it might be nice to see where we've come, where we're at, and look at what the challenges are ahead. So this is a paper that was published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology last year on May 20th, 2010, entitled Outcomes for Children and Adolescents with Cancer, Challenges for the 21st Century. So the authors are Malcolm Smith and the senior and others uh, from CTEP, which is Cancer Therapy Evaluation Program in the Division of Cancer Control and Population Sciences at the National Cancer Institute. Uh, and the senior author was Gregory Riemann, who, as many of you know, was, is the immediate past uh, chair of the Children's Oncology Group, a large, uh, probably the largest uh, cooperative group network for studying kids with cancer. So um, this paper uh, started out by talking about the incidence of cancer in children. Raj, can you maybe discuss a little bit about figure one? So uh, when you look at the incidence of cancer, they've uh, looked at it um, by breaking it down into uh, CNS tumors, uh, leukemia or lymphoid leukemias, and then they lumped all the other cancers together. If you look at them all, uh, all the cancers, all the three uh, subtypes, CNS, leukemias, and the others, uh, there has been an increase in uh, incidence over the last uh, 30 years or so. 30 years or so, from 1975 to 2006. Um, if you look at it, if you break it down, uh, you see an increase in the lymphoid leukemias, uh, and that was a significant increase over that time period. If you look at uh, the CNS tumors, there has been a slight but non-significant, uh, non-significant increase in the 1980s, and that's likely related to the use of MRIs at that time, or increased use of MRIs, so there's increased detection. Uh, but that was, not, that, was, that was not a significant increase, but then uh, since then it's remained stable. 
Um, if you look at all the other cancers combined, so all the non-lymphoid le- uh, leukemias and all the non-CNS tumors, uh, overall there was a modest increase overall from 19, 1975 to 2006. So, Raj, I mean, there's a little bit of variability as you go through the years, but overall it seems like a pretty steady trend, pretty um, consistent. Absolutely. And so, I mean, so they do see increases, but certainly it's not large increases. I mean, they're talking about less than a percent per year. Still, at this rate, if it remains unabated, you know, I mean, it's kind of disconcerting that this is on the rise. Is there any discussion about why? I think there's, there's a lot of theories out there uh, ranging from uh, are, are any of these things related to uh, environmental factors, uh, um, exposures, uh, you know, in terms of what uh, people are uh, seeing or using. Um, so I think there's a lot of different things, and certainly it gets uh, fairly hard since these are very infrequent events. So to try to look at these uh, and try to determine uh, what's causing these and how uh, they're increasing over time, it's kind of hard to, to necessarily pinpoint it. But the, the people do have some uh, some hypotheses, but it's, it's difficult to, to really pinpoint that uh, the cause for that. So most, most it's, it, uh, the data suggests it's real, that it's not just sort of detecting sooner other than the brain tumor. Correct. So that's a bit scary. To, to clarify, Raj, the, these increases uh, in incidence, this is a per capita increase, not just due to a growing population? I believe so. I, I believe there are age-adjusted, uh, sorry, there are uh, population-adjusted increases. So this would this would be, my understanding is this is consistent with a true increase uh, per, for example, 100,000 children. Right, I mean, these are all from SEER data, and those are all population-adjusted. Right, population-adjusted, yeah. okay. So that's, um, Yeah. Trying to see, it just says incidence with a number. Doesn't yes, say the, per. The, the figure itself was somewhat confusing, but I want to make sure the audience uh, understood it. Yep, that yep, makes sense. So, so that's a little scary, um, but I guess the facts. So we have to deal with them. Uh, and I think within the um, acute lymphoblastic leukemia research, um, people looking into epidemiology, it's very clear that there is an increase. That's uh, a real thing. And the reason for that is not well understood. There's a lot of speculation that it's related to uh, infectious or immune triggers, um, with some very nice research coming out of Great Britain um, showing that children who are in daycare or exposed to multiple other young children before the age of one actually have a markedly decreased risk of getting leukemias. So the fact that the incidence is going up may be related to fewer exposures early in life in more developed countries. So the incidence is going up both in the U.S. and paralleling that in Great Britain. So how, how sad are those data? Because I can now imagine all the daycares in the country putting this on their advertisements. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's in an, on an epidemiological level, it's a significant decrease in risk, um, relative risk, but obviously if your risk is already low, being you know one in number of hundred thousand, if you decrease it, that by half, it becomes one in a million. So taking something that's rare to making it even rarer, but right. Okay, well, it's um, it's something that's difficult to study, like anything that's that rare. Um, I, I think it's an important question because a lot of what we're seeing are population trends, and that's what we're looking at, and. Um, the question often comes is, well, what can we do about these trends at the individual level? And most often when you look at the, the statistics, 
it's hard to make any firm recommendations on any changes that we're seeing, uh, you know, like daycare, et cetera, because at the individual level, these population-based statistics become uh, more challenging to appreciate how it could benefit the individual family in any way. So we are seeing a trend, I think, but it's it's hard to to act on it in, in at the individual at the individual level. Sure, and, and proof is going to be hard to come by because the science, you know, True. to test the hypothesis, you need to um, interrogate the system, change something, and see if it changes the outcome, and that's. It'd be difficult to do something like this. I mean, just to give a better reflection on numbers, you know, it's certainly a little bit hard to know. But I mean, so sort of if you look at pediatric cancers, pediatric cancers, at least in the United States, may only makes up about twelve thousand four hundred so cancers compared to adult cancers, where there's one point four million cancers in adults. So it, you know, certainly trying to investigate any particular uh, cancer and exposure, you know, you break it down by age and by where they live and race. I mean, it makes it very very difficult to to uh, really pinpoint what might be an etiologic uh, cause for any of these things. And this has been a hot topic for a long time, and it's still ongoing, you know. About, about, but we, we always counsel our parents and patients that we don't know, for the most part, what causes cancer, right? In adults, yes, we know smoking causes lung cancer, human papillomavirus, cervical cancer. But for most childhood cancers, those, I would say, that aren't associated with genetic, inherited genetic predispositions, or, or immunodeficiencies, or, or drugs that produce immunodeficiencies, we don't know what causes cancer. So, on the one hand, you know, that takes away guilt. It's nothing you did. It's not that you live near a power line. It's not that you smoke pot or something. But, <laughs> um, but on the other hand, it's, it, it, you know, everybody wants to know what happened to the, uh, how, what, why, what caused their, their child's cancer. You know, there, there is, it's, it's not to say that this is not, while it's challenging to investigate, it's not to say that people aren't investigating this. And um, it's, 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 it's hoped that some of the, the genome-wide studies uh, combined with careful epidemiological uh, assessments that are being conducted through institutions, through cooperative groups, uh, and through other means will continue to advance our understanding as to who's at risk for various sub-conditions at the individual, you know, at the individual level. Um, so we're making some progress there, but um, a lot of a lot of work to be done. So we could probably talk all day about this, and then we'll never get through the podcast. So the next topic that was covered in this paper is really uh, the one that you know obviously scares people the most. How how much are we failing? What what are the um, uh, the, the numbers for cancer deaths? And that one I assigned to Lars. Uh, take it away, Lars. Well, actually, I think this is one of the encouraging parts of this report, um, specifically in that mortality rates for all uh, childhood cancers combined declined by more than 50% between 1975 and 2006. And so that translated to an estimated 38,000 childhood cancer deaths, which are averted during this 31-year time period. Um, so progress is clearly being made uh, in pediatric oncology. Um, perhaps the greatest impact in this reduction in overall mortality uh, came in the area of, of childhood leukemia, so ALL and AML, and, and combined there's been a 64% reduction in leukemia mortality rate uh, over that time period. Now, leukemia still remains the, the leading cause of death. It was in 1975. It is uh, and, and was still in 2006. But the proportion of deaths from leukemia has changed somewhat as improvements have been made. So, for example, um, 
while uh, leukemia accounted for 39% of childhood cancer deaths in 1975. It's decreased to 30%. And then other areas where advances have not been so striking, such as brain tumors, the relative proportion of cancer deaths has risen from 17 to 25%, for example, for childhood brain tumors. So that basically means we're doing reasonably well with leukemia, but not so much for brain tumors. Correct. And so that really covers figures two, three, four, right? Summarizes those data. Okay, great. Um, so then the, the paper sort of goes into more specific, disease-specific rates, which, as Lars just indicated, can, are quite different depending on what disease. So um, obviously the, the success story of pediatric oncology that everyone cites is leukemia. So um Maureen, tell us what this paper says about that. So Lars gave a really nice segue into a more detailed discussion of the leukemias and lymphomas because this really is um, an area of great success in pediatric cancer. If you look at um, leukemias in the 1960s and early 70s was really uh, often a fatal disease with little chance of cure, and this been transformed especially in the case of acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which is the most common subtype, into a disease in which the vast majority of children are cured. That being said, there are still some challenges, which I think are nicely highlighted by the results of this paper. So focusing first on ALL, or acute lymphoblastic leukemia, this is where um, some of the most significant gains have been seen, although we'll talk about a few more. And a lot of that has resulted from the fact that this is one of the most common types of childhood cancers and therefore lends itself to having very large, well-organized, well-designed clinical trials that are often difficult to do in rarer diseases. And that way, large studies can be done and new findings can move forward. And amazingly, these results have been achieved with really um, using drugs that we've had around since the 1960s and 70s, but learned to use better, learned to control their toxicity, um, and learned who needs more intensive and who needs less intensive therapy. So as a result, for children younger than 15 years of age, the five-year survival rates for ALL have improved from about 60% to almost 90% if you take children overall. The challenge for us um, in frontline ALL therapy remains in some specific subgroups, for example, older adolescents and young adults, so age greater than 15 years. We've not made the same kind of improvements that we've made for children. They have improved from 28% in the 1975 era to about 50% for adolescents over 15, but not nearly as good as the childhood population. So do you think that's because there are fewer of them? You imply that the more there are, the better we can study them, or are they a different biology? I think that it's a lot of the latter. Um, certainly there are fewer, and one of the challenges that may come up in this discussion with moving things into the future is targeting the adolescent and young adult population to bring them into research studies, but they have a different biology in the genetics of their leukemia. They have a much higher rate of something called the Philadelphia chromosome, um, and that's found in adults with ALL who also have poor outcomes, so a lot of it is different biology. And the additional thing to that would be is that very young children tend to tolerate the chemotherapy much better than adolescents and older adults who have more side effects, and therefore we're sometimes not able to deliver the same kind of intensity. But trying to treat adolescents and young adults with pediatric regimens is a goal. There's been um, significant research lately looking at 
uh, adolescents with ALL and lymphomas treated by medical oncologists versus treated by pediatric oncologists on pediatric regimens, and the outcomes for the same subgroups of patients in terms of age and biology biology tend to be better on pediatric regimens, which are more intensive. Um, The other group of children with ALL that we continue to struggle with are infants less than one year of age, which has uh, also uh, not as good of a prognosis and is associated, as you mentioned, with the adolescents with um, biology. They tend to have a rearrangement of a gene called MLL and are harder to treat. But we have improved for them as well from only about 20% survival in 1975 to about 60% now, so continuing to make strides. Um, in terms of acute myeloid leukemia, that accounts for only about 20% of children with leukemia. And traditionally, patients with AML have had um, not as good outcomes as those with ALL. But there have been a significant advancements in survival rates for these children um, from about 20% in the 1975 era to about 58% in 2000. And that's been achieved in a number of ways, some of which are by uh, intensifying the chemotherapy that we use, some of which is by better use of stem cell transplant for certain patient populations. Some of that comes from identifying groups that have good biology that are easier to treat or diseases that have biology that lends themselves to specific therapies. An example of that is um, mentioned in the paper is promyelocytic leukemia, which is a specific subgroup that is small, it's only about 10% of AML, but um, is treatable with medications that wouldn't otherwise be considered chemotherapy with something called retinoic acid. And that discovery has enabled that group to catapult from very poor prognosis to one of the best prognoses in terms of childhood leukemias. The other um, really important thing for AML therapy that's probably changed things as much as any of the chemotherapy is the supportive care and our ability to take care of children who are going to be neutropenic, have very suppressed immune systems for weeks to months and prevent the kinds of uh, severe infections that were a big problem with AML therapy. So um, moving on to the lymphomas, um, the paper started actually with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, although I'm going to start with Hodgkin's lymphoma and flip them around a little bit. So Hodgkin's lymphoma is an interesting group because if you look at the paper, the cure rates um, haven't changed all that much. That's because actually in 1975, that was one of the things that was highly curable then and is highly curable now. The cure rates were in the high 80% range for most kids and now are greater than 95%. So Hodgkin's lymphoma is an extremely curable disease. So the research in this um, area has focused much more on risk stratification and tailoring therapy so that patients are not getting too much, um, tailoring their chemotherapy dosing and trying to tailor radiation uh, to impact uh, late effects, which Raj wants to comment on anything related to research involving late effects, but the Hodgkin's group lends itself to that because with very curable childhood um, cancers, the focus going forward in terms of research is how to minimize late effects for long-term quality of life and other medical problems. Yeah, absolutely. We certainly have seen, uh, in terms of uh, in terms of uh, childhood cancer survivorship, as they get older and older, that they do run into difficulties. And it all is dependent upon uh, the types of therapies they've received, uh, the age at which they received it. Um, and looking at those and going forward, hopefully, you know, as uh, Maureen's discussed, you know, uh, we've been trying to make changes in terms of what they receive to see if we can uh, decrease the risks that they've had, uh, ranging from cardiac toxicity, pulmonary toxicity, and fertility-related issues. 
And uh, I think we have been able to make some of those uh, impacts, but that's something that's going to be working on as we go forward. I guess we can all hope that each of these diseases will get to that, that point where that's our main concern. So the last group for the leukemias and lymphomas that uh, they addressed in the figure is non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is uh, very common in adults, but the types of non-Hodgkin's lymphomas that children get are much different with the predominance of lymphoblastic lymphoma and diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And there have been great strides in the treatment of this disease, really with understanding the unique biology of those types of lymphomas compared to the indolent or more slow-growing lymphomas that adults get. And with recognizing more about the biology of those diseases, we've been able to really tailor the therapy to um, treat that better. So overall, we've improved from about 45% survival rates to almost 90% um, in 2000. And this has happened with... um, uh, using multi-agent chemotherapy for Burkitt's lymphoma, so the cure rates are above 90%, and using lymphoblastic leukemia regimens for children with lymphoblastic lymphoma. So overall, um, really great strides made in these subgroups of patients in the past 25 years. And that's all great news. Um, it's probably that we've sort of hit the low-hanging fruit, and now it's going to get tougher to make progress on those that haven't responded. So just to move on... Um, Lars, uh, why don't you talk briefly about the brain tumors? Yeah, so even though brain tumors in general have been tougher to make progress um, with, uh, there has been some improvement in survival rates for brain tumor patients over the past few decades. Um, These uh, improvements in survival rates have been noticed in kids of all ages, in particular younger children under the age of five. And that may be due to our general therapeutic approach where we're being more aggressive with the use of radiotherapy at younger ages or perhaps the use of high-dose chemotherapy and autologous stem cell transplant. Um, Other potential causes for improvement in the mortality of these patients um, could be advances in neurosurgical techniques or uh, radiation uh, therapy um, uh, treatment methods. Um, If you look uh, specifically at the most common high-grade malignant brain tumor in children, which is medulloblastoma, the five-year survival rate in the 70s was less than 50%. And as we entered the 21st century, it uh, was up in the 70% uh, range. Um, And that's uh, in part due to evolving changes in the standard of care, where now chemotherapy is um, uh, becoming standard to be used in addition to post-operative radiotherapy. Um, So I think in summary, um, the progress is slow, but there is progress being made. Great. Um, Thanks, Lars. I know you have to leave, so... um You'll have to listen to the rest of it when you download the podcast. Thanks for coming today. So I'm going to just talk about the next figure in this paper, which is figure seven, and we're getting close to the end because there's eight, only eight figures. So um, figure seven talks about the, the sarcomas, so osteosarcoma, Ewing sarcoma, and rhabdomyosarcoma. sarcoma. So we know that osteo is the most common bone tumor. Uh, Ewing sarcoma is the second most common, and then rhabdomyosarcoma sarcoma is the most common soft tissue tumor. And just holding this paper sort of up in the air and glancing at it from afar, it's striking that during the early period of this that this study covers, sort of from the uh, 70s to the early 80s, um, the bone tumors um, were a little bit flat, at least for the osteosarcoma, the survival was more in the 40 to 50% range, five-year survival. There was some initial jump 
uh, in the 70s for uh, Ewing sarcoma. But by and large, that was leveled off as well. And the there was a jump in, in survival for osteosarcoma that occurred in the late 80s, early 90s, and that's pretty much attributed to the introduction of cisplatin uh, to the regimens. And then for Ewing sarcoma, there was a jump a little bit later in the early 90s, and that's pretty much attributed to the introduction of ifosamide etoposide to the regimen. So there was clearly advances in both of these bone tumors uh, in terms of survival, but since those singular introductions, there really hasn't been any, any progress. So uh, the, the overall survival for Ewing sarcoma uh, is pretty flat-lined in the high 70 percentile since the uh, early 90s. Um, it's, it is better, similar to leukemia, for the younger patients, those less than age 15, and a little bit worse for the teenagers. Again, a, a major issue. That's more striking for Ewing sarcoma, though, than for osteosarcoma. And, and for osteosarcoma, though, overall, there hasn't really been a lot of progress since the late 80s, since the introduction of cisplatin. So those are a bit sobering because we've done a lot of research studies in these. We've learned a lot about the biology, but it clearly tells us that we have a, a lot more to go. And rhabdomyosarcoma is a little bit different story. It sort of is more up and down over the years. There was some initial progress in the 70s and 80s with um, introduction of multi-agent chemotherapy, surgery, and radiation. Uh, and then it's not... We've not seen a lot of progress since then. Again, here, start uh, markedly better for the younger patients, those less than 15, than for the adolescents, 15 to 19. Uh, and we're talking here a difference of up to, you know, 15 to 20% difference. So, um, you know, the current survival overall for retinoid sarcoma, again, is around 70%, and it was uh, in, for the younger patients and about 50% uh, for the older patients. So clearly there's a lot more work to go in go on that. So um, I think we'll finish up this paper on relative high notes. So Jim's going to talk about um, some of the other more rare cancers. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Tim. But before I go, I, 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 reflecting on your comments on the sarcomas, maybe think about reality, which is <clears throat> worth some pause in that uh, when we think about uh, advances happening once every other decade, um, it's, it's, it, it's by itself it seems discouraging, but it, it, yet some of the curves do go up, which we'll talk about. Um, in Ewing sarcoma specifically, recently there's been some advance uh, when giving the same old drugs, but perhaps more tightly, more compressed, uh, giving them every two weeks instead of every three weeks. I, I'm not sure. If it, would you did that calculate into this? No, graph? this I, I think it's a, it's a good point. Uh, that probably um, I, I sort of consider that finding to be the most dramatic thing that's happened to Ewing sarcoma since the introduction of ifosfamide so that is interval compression where we're trying to give chemo every two weeks instead of every three weeks, which makes sense if you can do that, uh, patients can tolerate it because then the <coughs> cancer cells are going to be exposed to drug more often than not. Uh, um, and, and that certainly in the initial studies and initial publications uh, from children's oncology group studies suggests that um, at least another 10% perhaps uh, in five-year survival. So that is exciting, It's still, and that's not reflected in these data because not enough time has gone by. But I also must mention that I, something I forgot is uh, they, the fact that for metastatic sarcoma patients of all, of all types, we really haven't made any progress in the last 30 years. Would, would you say that um, by the addition, for example, in Ewing's of ifosmiotoposide, making it a five-drug regimen as a standard of care, 
uh, and then further compressing it to every two weeks. And similar um, analogous stories, the other sarcomas, brain tumors elsewhere that perhaps were reaching maximum therapeutic intensity with some of the old stuff, either adding a new, a new myelosuppressive or aggressive therapy or moving them tightly together to the point where uh, do you see further advances? Tim, you're the host, oh, you know, and we've got to ask you some questions, too. <laughs> right, sure. Um, I can't get away from that. So, I mean, that's one of the points in their discussion, clearly, that we've reached the maximum benefit of available therapies. And, you know, they don't really talk about uh, the use of stem cell rescue or bone marrow transplant, you know, the highest dose chemo that we can give, followed by restoring a patient's bone marrow in here, but it's certainly been tried by many different groups and investigators, and it's still an ongoing question for some of these diseases. I think it's Pretty much the door's been shut for rhabdomyosarcoma that, you know, it doesn't help. It's been tried in high-risk cases and doesn't seem to help. Uh, osteosarcoma hasn't really been tried much. Um, and uh, for Ewing sarcoma is the area where it's been the most controversial with small reports saying there may be helpful and uh, larger studies saying maybe not. And that's still an ongoing research study. But, uh, and hopefully we'll have the data from some of the, the Ewing 99, for example, study soon uh, to answer that. But even if it helps, it's not going to be a home run, maybe a base hit, right, maybe 5 to 10%. So um, I think we have reached maximum uh, benefit from our available therapies, and that's the point of the discussion of this paper, that we need something new. Right. And, and, and uh, I agree. The final, final figure kind of summarize, uh, presents situations that summarize a lot of the points that others have made, uh, yourself, Raj, uh, Lars, and Maureen. Uh, the first graph is a graph of, of germ cell tumors, and it's broken down by age and site, uh, gonadal versus extragonadal. Um, when we look at gonadal germ cell tumors in, in, in the younger pediatric group, the outcomes have always been good, and they've stayed good. Now, good is a relative term. If your child didn't do well, uh, the statistics don't matter, right? We, we talk about these statistics, but at the individual level, if, if, if you're the parent of a child who hasn't done well, Perhaps uh, we haven't done well. <clears throat> we haven't done well enough. Right. Uh, but you have a, a, a flat curve that goes over time, showing limited improvement, but uh, you know over ninety percent cure. And then if you look at the extragonadal pediatric uh, uh, germ cell tumors, you have a, a, a curve trending up, not quite to where the, the gonadal tumors are, but starting in the forty percent range back in the late seventies and early eighties, and uh, now we're now we're hovering at the eighty percent range. So. There's two curves inherent in this in this uh, graph, one being relatively flat with a good prognostic group, and one uh, increasing um, um, with time. And they actually reflect uh, two important messages of how we're caring for these children. For those that have done very well, what this doesn't tell you is that some of these children actually had surgery and did not get any chemotherapy. For those patients who are on that flat curve that have done relatively well, that extra gonadal group that, I'm sorry, that gonadal group that have done very well, uh, whereas in historic ways we would always give chemotherapy to all children, now we know that there are certain children that don't need it. So what's not always easily seen in these curves is how we've treated them. And what we can say from that flat curve is they're doing well, the gonadal primaries. And in fact, we've learned enough about which ones need what, that some of them are still doing as well but not getting as much therapy. That's an example of a reduction of therapy. So similar to the Hodgkin story. With risk stratification. And on the flip side, the curve going up for the extra bananas reflects therapeutic intensification. So this risk-adapted approach is a common theme that I think we see through all, uh, a reduction of therapy for those doing well and an intensification of therapy that those 
historically who haven't. Better models have improved these curves uh, and population-based uh, data. For Wilms tumor, what we can see in the second part of this graph is it's, it starts off pretty good and it gets better. And that's, that's a testament to the National Wilms Tumor Study Group, the, early, the, the earliest of cooperative group uh, trials for pediatric cancer that perhaps uh, uh, should be given credit to the, the initiation of the consortium concept to, to cancer uh, trial development. Um, and um, in, in that group, we have the main focus, analogous to Hodgkin's, has been reduction of late effects and maintenance uh, and maintenance of good outcomes. Uh, the neuroblastoma curve, which is the funnel curve, again reflects a two-curve pattern. For those that have less than one, historically they've had very good out- outcomes, and they continue to have good outcomes. Um, and good being 85, 90%. Well, that's what these curves show, but they only go up to 2002. I think that some of the less than one-year-olds with current risk-adapted therapy, I think we could suggest are a little higher than this, actually. So there might have been a bump in uh, even since what this paper brings us to uh, in improved outcomes for the young, youngest children with neuroblastoma, and largely credit to, to improved understanding of the biology of the disease and better risk stratification of those who need less versus those who need more. We've also seen a slow increase in uh, uh, improved prognosis in the high-risk neuroblastoma group, but I, I caution you that uh, going from 35% to 45 or 55%, uh, perhaps 55 to 60 percent more recently. Um, again, if you're the parent of a child who's not doing well, this this is not good enough. Uh, and that's despite maximum therapeutic intensification, high-dose chemotherapy, differentiation agents, and a, another example where 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 the, the next advances in the field are going to come from novel molecular targeted therapeutics. And neuroblastoma really is a poster child for you know understanding the biology and translating that understanding into new testing new drug. I mean, not only is it surgery, chemo, and radiation, which are the sort of big three for sarcomas, but you've got differentiating agents, the biologics, antibodies, all kinds of things coming to the fray here. So it's really an exciting area of growth now. I absolutely. Cisfrontinoic <laughs> um, uh, acid, which is a differentiating agent, and uh, anti-GD2 targeted antibodies are now uh, regarded by many as standard as adjunctive therapies for high-risk cases. As well as the uh, targeted... Uh, Radiation. The MIBG, yes. Can't Correct. forget that. Absolutely. Brian wouldn't like us. <laughs> so, um, any other final comments about those? <clears throat> so, that sort of covers, I think, all the data that's presented in this paper. There are obviously a lot of comments in the discussion. We've already covered many of them. Um, there's just a couple that, that I wanted to highlight. Uh, you know, it says basically here that within the coming five years, cancer... Cancers with a five-year survival rate exceeding 90% for children less than age 15 may expand to include ALL and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, in addition to Hodgkin's lymphoma, non-CNS germ cell tumors, and Wilms tumor. And that really is a testament to clinical research, clinical trials, uh, working together, cooperative groups, because as this uh, paper describes and as Lars pointed out near the beginning, if it weren't for research, if the trends or the survivals had been the same as they were at the beginning, uh, you know, 30 years ago, or even really, yeah, 30 years ago, uh, there would be 38,000 kids that wouldn't have made it, that, that have made it. So that's really a, for pediatric oncology, that's a staggering number. And, and I think that gives us all hope that this is something that we can conquer, that we can solve uh, kids' cancer. But clearly, as we've all pointed out in these different diseases, there's a lot of room to grow. 
Um, do you guys have any other comments or things that you want to highlight from this discussion? I think the thing that I would add that it builds off of what you just said, Tim, and, and what Jim was talking about is this issue of we look at the statistics and say, hey, for ALL, we're doing 90% or better, and um, that being a statistic. And one of the challenges of a disease like ALL is because it is one of the most common childhood cancers, Lars had brought this up early on, that even though we're doing so well, 10% of the biggest group ends up being that having relapsed ALL is actually more common than many types of solid tumors. And so not getting complacent with how well we've done, but where we need to go to get that last group, they still account for 30% of all childhood cancer deaths is patients with leukemias. So, um, you know, as I said, we've come a long way, and taking the next steps is going to be perhaps harder, but... Right. Um, yeah, Maureen, I agree, and I think it's worth pointing out... Um, not only do we need to improve our cure rates through through novel drugs um, uh, and, and novel mechanisms of delivery, but you know if we if we pause and reflect on what it takes to cure a child with leukemia, for example, uh, uh, three years of chemotherapy, three years of of life interrupted in many ways. Although we've we've done a good job in in addressing the quality of life aspects of all families experiencing cancer as they go through it, um, you, you know. It's it's still not a trivial trivial path to cure uh, in most situations, and and further, it's not a trivial path uh, in survivorship, which which Raj knows very well, and that the, the 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 survivorship clinics thankfully uh, are growing nationally uh, in number and scope, um, and uh, the reality is is that um, I'm not sure if we've broken the the million mark of, of pediatric cancer survivors in our country, the United States at least, but if not, we're certainly getting close. Uh, I don't know, Raj, if you have those statistics offhand, uh, but childhood cancer survivorship um, is, is not a trivial issue. So not just the experience to cure, the experience after cure, and, um, and of course, those that aren't being cured need our desperate attention. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I agree with you, Jim. And I mean, certainly uh, the numbers are increasing. And, you know, if you look at some of the statistics, I mean, uh, one of the statistics that's out there is that one in, um, 570 young adults between the ages of 20 and 34 is a survivor of cancer. So certainly, uh, you know, you go to any large uh, school, college, workplace, you know, you'll have, you know, uh, a survivor of childhood cancer. So certainly it is becoming more and more, um, we're curing more and more. So they're, they're out there. And certainly uh, one thing that we have to, as we're doing better, we need to address is their health care as they get older. <coughs> Very well said, guys. I think we ought to wrap it up since we've gone much longer than I anticipated, but great comments, and I do want to invite our listeners, no matter when you're listening to this, if it's six months from now or two years from now, hopefully if we're still doing this podcast, then um, we can uh, address or talk about any comments you want to email us, um, so we'd be happy to read those during future podcasts. So send us a note at TWIPO, that's T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer, all one word, dot O-R-G. And uh, just to drop a little hint for next week, uh, the episode, so the senior uh, investigator on today's paper was Gregory Riemann, who's a professor at George Washington University and the immediate past president of the Children's Oncology Group. And two weeks ago, I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Riemann and conduct an interview. It also lasted about a half an hour, but... Uh, like t- we talked about his career and the COG and things that he thought were the successes and, and some of the failures, in fact, or challenges currently. And he also told me about a new job that he's going to. So he's switching, switching his job. So 
Be sure to tune in to next week's episode to hear about Dr. Riemann. We mentioned this paper that we discussed as well and uh, had a great conversation. So, again, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, We believe the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. So, as always, keep up the fight. Thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.